Hello, this is Sherry from Frankfort, Kentucky, and when I drive to and from work, I like to listen to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear. The silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hey, Ashley. Hello, Candy. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to record again because yeah. it's been a few weeks. It has. You've been gone. I have. Yeah. Did you have a good trip? I had a very good trip. Good. It was a nice road trip. Got to spend some time with my daughter. Yes. So it was it was very nice. But now we are back to our theme of monster madness. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I do too. I hope that this will translate well. I thought mm-hmm. I would begin by playing just a short clip. Okay to introduce today's topic. All right. We'll see if this works since obviously we are on audio and this is a visual <laughs> clip. We'd like you to try this new diet cola. We call it nature's goodness. What's in it? 2,4-oxypropaniramine. <laughs> Sweet. Pleasing taste. Some monsterism. I could tell he was transforming when I heard the... (laughs) (laughs) That was a clip from The Simpsons. Ashley didn't get to see all of it, but Ashley, what famous literary work do you think that we were seeing represented there? Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde, which is absolutely our topic for today. And I was kind of surprised, actually, to find out that it's as old as it is. Really? Do you know when the original was written? Um, I'm going to guess the 1800s. You are correct. Yes! It was back in 1886. So we are, I know, we're talking about a piece that's basically 140 years old. Still relevant. It is. Mm -hmm. I started to think about this. There is a theater group in the area that is actually in rehearsal of the play right now, the musical version. Cool. And there is another community theater that's a little further out, but Mm -hmm. it's still in the same region. And it has it on the docket, on their schedule for next Mm. year's season. Nice. That's They're going to do the straight version of the play, non-musical. Okay. So it's going on around us, Mm -hmm. even as we speak. And I thought it would be fun just to check out how my kids (laughs) would respond. Uh You know, were they familiar with it? Uh What I found out was Camden had no idea about the story, although his girlfriend, Bree, knew knew the idea. She could tell me the whole premise. Okay. Kennedy was a little uncertain. She knew the basic idea of the the split personality. Right. Mm -hmm. But she didn't know the details. All of them said they've heard the term, the phrase Jekyll and Hyde, that type of uh, reference used several times. Like they understood that reference, even though they weren't really up fully on the literary work. So I thought that was interesting that these Mm -hmm. young people who really didn't know the... The full story. Exactly. Still said, no, it's around us. It's in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found out as I continue to research. It's actually in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. If you look up Jekyll and Hyde, it says, one having a two-sided personality, one side of which is good and the other evil. Yeah. And then I started looking for more modern parodies, spoofs, spinoffs, whatever you would call them. I came across across so many examples. They span from a long time ago with Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy. He did one? He did a spoof called Dr. Pickle and Mr. Pride. (laughs) It's silent and it's short, but Uh it's cute. And then you had Bugs Bunny, which I guess that would have been what, 1930s maybe? Around in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. He did an episode. Well, I guess I'm talking about him as though he's a person, but... (laughs) Bugs wrote it, directed it, started it. He did it all. He was amazing. Yes, he was. Now, there was an episode called Hide and Hair. Carol Burnett had a spoof called Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde. Ooh. Yes. There's a, a Phineas and Ferb episode. We heard the Simpsons <laughs> yeah. episode just now. Stan Lee said that along with Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde helped inspire the Incredible Hulk. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. There are video games based on it. I mean, this goes on and on. In fact, 
even just Googling, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I came across headlines. Here's an example. One newspaper headline said, double murder suspect had Jekyll and Hyde-like anger, says witness. Mm. So it is all over pop culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's- I always thought it was interesting because to me, if you just told me the names Jekyll and Hyde, I would have attributed Jekyll being the evil personality mm. and Hyde being the, the good one, but it's the opposite. Just because the word Jekyll seems very... Makes you think of Jackal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so too. But Dr. Jekyll was good and Mr. Hyde was the bad side. Yes. What else do you know about it? You know, just thinking about that, I probably am along the lines with your kids in that I know the basics, but I don't remember the story. I've seen adaptations of it, but it was many, many years ago. To be quite honest, I've not read the original myself. Okay. I've only read summaries. But here's one from AmericanLiterature.com that gives the overall premise. It says, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a classic gothic novel written by Robert Louis Stevenson about dual personalities and an exploration of the subconscious. The story is about a London lawyer named Gabriel John Utterson who investigates strange occurrences between his old friend, Dr. Henry Jekyll, and the evil Edward Hyde, diagnosed as in modern times as split personality or dissociative identity disorder. Mm. Dr. Jekyll has two distinctly opposite personalities, one good, the other evil. It's the struggle between the two moralities that makes this story so compelling and widely mimicked as a prevailing theme of literature and entertainment. So it's it was another side of himself. Mm-hmm. And I think he there's been a lot of talk about whether or not this was a science fiction story mm-hmm. because he was using this idea of science, medicine, to try to take control of the, the two sides of himself. So those two sides of himself already existed mm-hmm. before he did this. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And just so that I don't forget to say this later, one of the other things that I discovered through this research is that a lot of our adaptations today will have romantic connotations yeah. or things. There's a woman it, no, in it. There yeah, was never a lady. No, like that was not there in the first one. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now the musical that has been out based, it's, it's called just Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. It's a little different. Here's a summary that they put out in their promotional materials. Dr. Jekyll is a kind, well-respected, and intelligent scientist who explores the darker side of science as he wants to bring out his second nature. Unfortunately, his experiments transform him into Mr. Hyde, his evil alter ego who doesn't repent or accept responsibility for his evil crimes and ways. That seems more familiar from, yeah, I've probably seen the adaptations of the musical then. Mm -hmm. The struggle to keep his alternate nature contained leads Dr. Jekyll down a path of death and destruction in this gothic thriller. This exciting stage adaptation of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson is a narrative about the complexities of science and the duplicity of human nature. Mm, Kind of in the same vein as our Frankenstein. I saw the same parallels Mm -hmm, too. mm -hmm. So since it is such an important work that has obviously made an impression, right? It's still around. We're hearing all these references. Let's go ahead and talk about how it came to be. And I'll just go ahead and start with Robert Louis Stevenson himself. He was actually born in Edinburgh, Scotland, as the only child of Thomas Stevenson and Margaret Balfour. Oh, he's a Scot. And I thought this was kind of interesting. They had this grandfather named Robert Stevenson, who apparently was pretty cool. He had some status behind him. He was famous for building lighthouses. And so Robert Louis Stevenson and a lot of his cousins were all named after this grandfather, but then they would call them basically by their middle names. Instead of of calling them all Robert, they would call them by their middle names. So Robert Louis Stevenson went by Louis. Oh, is this kind of like George Foreman, how he named all his kids George? I guess. I don't know. know. Is that true? I think it is. But I'm going to call him Louis because that's what he went by. Okay. Yeah. Now, Louis was sickly from birth. And the illness that he suffered from was often called weak chest. And this is something that he dealt with throughout his entire life. Well, one, not one, more than one source would say it was similar to tuberculosis, but they never really defined it. That was just something that was put out there. What was the symptoms, did they say? Yes. He would have fevers, coughing, bronchial infections, and eventually he even had something that this is in quotation marks. So apparently this is a term they use, the Bloody Jack, which was a hemorrhage of the lungs. Oi. Yeah. So this was something that affected him. I mean, like, obviously, obviously this affected him. Because he was so sickly, before he was even two years old, they brought in this young woman named Allison Cunningham, who acted as his nurse. And Mm -hmm. he was so 
devoted to her that she's the one he dedicated this work that he wrote, A Child's Garden of Verses in 1885. To her? To her, yes. Aww. So 30 years later, he, he she dedicated She made an impression. The, yes, she did. And so living this lifestyle where so often he was bedridden or unable to do the things he wanted, mm-hmm. that obviously played out in some of his yeah. other works too. In fact, there was a poem they referenced called The Land of Counterpain that was inspired by some of those experiences. Counterpain of, sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And it also caused him to miss a lot of schooling. But his mm-hmm. family addressed that by having nannies or private tutors work with him. And on the Robert Louis Stevenson Museum site, they commented that the fact that he was in bed so much probably encouraged him to use his imagination imagination more and led to some of his Mm -hmm. great writing. I was going to say that too. Yeah. And he was a writer from an early age. His first published work was called The Pentland Rising, 1866, which was about a religious topic, Mm -hmm. which tracked because his family was very religious. Mm -hmm. He wrote it when he was 16 and his father had the pamphlet published at his own expense. That's cool. Mm Mm-hmm. He was self-published. Yes, he was. Robert entered the University of Edinburgh when he was 16, and he was planning to become a lighthouse engineer like his father, and sounds like his grandfather too. But here's where he kind of took a little bit of a different path. Mm -hmm. He was more interested in having fun than he was in studying. Oh, (laughs) the The bio on the Poetry Foundation website said, quote, he became known for his outrageous dress and behavior, Uh sporting a wide-brimmed hat and a boy's velveteen coat, Stevenson was called Velvet Jacket. Oh, (laughs) Velvet Jacket. (laughs) They're just calling him his clothes. (laughs) Well, and apparently Lewis and his cousin Bob got into some trouble. They dabbled with some drugs. They were pursuing the ladies. And as you might expect, Lewis's father was not really excited by what was happening with Lewis at college. And then he was even more upset when Lewis told him at age 22 that he had decided he was now an agnostic. So they're having some some tension Uh between Lewis and his dad. And he finally said, you know, I don't even want to become an engineer. Mm -hmm. I would like to pursue writing. This really upset his father. And they finally decided that Lewis would pursue law. So he did do that. Okay. He, he went to law school, but during his summer holidays, he would go to France and he would hang out with other young artists, writers, and painters. Man, that would have been cool. Yeah, it would have been. And he would work on essays and he ended up writing book reviews and articles, experimenting with short stories. And his first published work was an essay called Roads. And then he, after that, published some volumes that were basically travel logs, kind of about his travels. Mm-hmm. And that was a theme with him throughout his entire life. He traveled a lot, number one, because he loved to travel, but also he was always searching for climates that would help his health. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Searching for the warmer climates. He's kind of reminding me right now of an Instagram person that travels and blogs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He was ahead about, of his time. He was ahead of his time. He's talking about his travels and he's like, maybe he's doing food pictures or something like that. You know? <laughs> Here's what I had for dinner, everybody. <laughs> Well, he did graduate with a law degree, but he never practiced. And because he loved writing while he was at the university, not only did he have those summer experiences, but he supposedly really worked on training himself to be a writer by studying and imitating the styles of authors he admired, such as William Hazlitt or Daniel Defoe. And then his love interest came into play. Mm. In 1879, he moved to America following this lady named Fanny Vandegrift Osborne. That's a cool name. It is. Yeah, he had met her three years earlier at an artist colony near Paris. She was older than him by 11 years. And at the time they met, she was separated from her husband, who several sources said was cheating on her, Mm. and she was living abroad with her two children. So the two of them met, and he definitely was in love with her, but she ended up returning to California and to her husband in 1878. But by August of the next year, Lewis got this cable from her, and it was enough to propel him to head directly to America from Scotland. Oh, I wonder what it said. I'm I'm assuming it said, come on, come on, come on, (laughs) come on. It's over. Come on, Lewis. (laughs) They said the journey almost killed him. Oh, no. Yeah. He landed in New York, having traveled steerage across the Atlantic, and they said that his health had become so much worse just in that part of the trip. But then as he continued to travel across the country, it got worse. They used the words in this one source that he was impoverished, sick, and starving. Oh. I know. He stayed Fanny, look what you're doing to him. Do you know any... I don't know anybody that would do that for me. They'd be like, hey, honey. 
honey. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. I don't know. Right. No, this no. man was in love. Yes. Yeah. It said he lived in Monterey and then San Francisco for a while, nearly dying in both places. Golly. But it eventually paid off because okay. Fanny did divorce her husband. And on May 19th of 1880, she and Lewis were married and they stayed married. Oh, good. And their adventures together would basically give him material for his writing. Oh, Every, good. Everything okay. was copy. Oh, yes, good. Thank yeah, goodness. Everything was copy. Fanny, you've redeemed yourself. He nearly died for you, but good. Yeah, good. they were devoted to each other. So, for example, Silverado Squatters, a work of 1883, was about his honeymoon experiences. Aww. So, just an example. Now, only a year after he had left Scotland to come find her in America... He ends up bringing Fanny back to his own country. And then they settle down in this cottage in the summer of 1881 with her children. She had two children. This is where he begins to write Treasure Island. And I thought this was a cute story. I know I'm a, I'm a little off base because I'm, I'm, but I'm getting there. I'm heading towards okay. Jekyll and Hyde. But okay. this is just, a, this is a cute story. Lloyd was Lewis's stepson. Okay. And one day when they were stuck inside, he, Lloyd was on school break and it was rainy. Lloyd decided he was going to draw pictures to pass the time. And Lewis sits down to join him and so somehow or other he ends up creating this map of an island just playing around yeah and then he gets caught up in it he starts filling in names of different spots like spyglass hill and he starts marking where the treasure would be with crosses and then according to lewis these are his words the future characters of the book began to appear there visibly among imaginary woods and their brown faces and bright weapons peeped out upon me from unexpected quarters as they passed to and fro fighting and hunting treasure on these few square inches of a flat projection. The next thing I knew, I had some papers before me and was writing out a list of chapters. That is so cool. And also, it did not sink in my mind that the same person who wrote Treasure Island also wrote Jekyll and Hyde. I don't know who I thought wrote it, but I just didn't, didn't put think it, it together. Was, yeah, I didn't put it together. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. It is cool. Well, on October 1st of 1881, Young Folks Magazine began to publish the story in a serial format, which was a big thing they would do back then. Ashley just pulled out a book by Robert Louis Stevenson. What is it? A compilation of his works? Yeah. Robert Louis Stevenson, Complete and Unabridged. We have seven novels, Treasure Island, Prince Otto, The Strange Case. Oh, so the official title was The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Kidnapped, The Black Arrow, The Master of Alantre, and David Balfour. Now, what's interesting is does it say the strange case or strange case uh on here it says the strange case so technically found out that it was called strange case with no the in front of it because he wanted it to read like a newspaper headline supposedly that's what mental floss said in their article if you look it up Mm -hmm. you'll find the more educational sources will list it as strange case okay and other sources will put the the in there i'm gonna see what it says on the inside now if they just did it. Hang on. Oh, but this is his map. There's his map. Cool. Isn't that cool? I wonder if it's the one he drew or if it's one that they then designed later. I don't know. Oh, it says, look who it's dedicated to. To Lloyd Osborne, an American gentleman in accordance with whose classic taste the following narrative has been designed. It is now in return for numerous delightful hours and with the kindest wishes dedicated by his affectionate friend, the author. Oh, and his stepdad. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't identify their relationship, but what a sweet and dedication. Let's see who he dedicates this one to. Hmm. This says, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to Catherine de Matos. It's ill to loose the bands that God decreed to bind. Still will we be the children of the heather and the wind. Far away from home, oh, it's still for you and me that the broom is blowing Bonnie in the North Country. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see who Catherine was. Right. Okay, sorry. No, that was fun. Yeah. So back to Treasure Island. He put it out in this serial format in this magazine under the pseudonym of Captain George North, and it did not do well. Mm. Now, his wife, Fanny, was supposed to have said she didn't like Treasure Island, and she actually discouraged him from having it published in book format, which I guess if it didn't do well in the serial, maybe that was part of it, too. Well, he went ahead and did it anyway, obviously. It was published in late 1883 and became a bestseller. Hmm. In his lifetime, the number of copies sold reached tens of thousands, and reviewers really liked it. In fact, it was said in one source that they declared it sheer entertainment and gave him credit for single-handedly changing the face of children's literature. Amazing. I wonder how he would feel about Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like that one. That's one of my favorite Muppet movies. I've never You've seen You've never that. seen it? No. Ah, Tim Curry's in it. Oh, oh, that would be funny. Yes, it's great. <laughs> well, a quick note about Fanny. She seemed to be a little controversial. As really? I, yes, it was funny. Some people seemed to like her and some people didn't seem to. But almost all of them seem to view her as somewhat of a partner mm-hmm. in her husband's work. She gave feedback. According to one source, at least, she helped edit many of his works because, remember, he's struggling with his health a right. lot. But he's in Scotland. It's wet there, mm-hmm. right? Well, and they, they'll move again. Okay. But, but for now, they are. Yes. But the thing, too, is that Fanny was an artist in her own right. She was a trained painter, and she had written several things, including several short stories and some travel diaries during all of their travels. Mm-hmm. So he didn't always follow her advice. Obviously, in this case, he did not. Right. But it was clear he valued her opinion, and there were times he definitely did. Right? That sounds like a good partnership to me, though. It's his work, so he gets the final say, and she's not bossing him, but she's giving him advice. We'll come back to that later. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe she is bossing him. (laughs) I don't know. Well, in 1882, this is when, as we said, they moved again. Okay, good. Yeah. They moved this time to France, and Lewis suffered a hemorrhage that caused him to be confined to bed. Oh, prevented him from speaking and rendered him incapable of writing stories for oh, a while no. as he was recovering. Yeah, it was serious. However, he was able to write poetry. So this is when he wrote, as when he'd gotten a little better, when he wrote most of that that book that we referenced earlier, A Child's Garden of Verses. And that's what he dedicated to, to his, his nanny. former nurse. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then when his health improved, that's when he wrote The Black Arrow, which is in your book you mm-hmm. just mentioned. That was published serially as well and then came out as a book a few years later. And then Kidnapped ran. That's also in this book. Okay. Yes. That ran in 1886 as a serial and was published as a book the same year. By this time, they are now in England. Okay. The climate in England is still kind of damp. But I guess you go where you know. I guess so. I hope he felt better. I don't know what the climate in France is like. South of France is really nice. Well, they were, actually, they were in the south of France. Oh, good. I Mm -hmm. hope he felt good then. Yeah. But now they're in England. Yeah. So So the novel Kidnapped was successful and it brought him some recognition, but he was having a banner year because the same year that Kidnapped came out was the year that he published Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So here's the story of how the book came to be. And just to go ahead and give it a shout out, a lot of this came from a Forbes article, although there were several other sources that played into this as well. But one night, Lewis was in bed and he was sick. And he had this nightmare that was described as descending on him like a swift forming fog, swirling together memories and discarded thoughts. Now, as we've said several times, he was sick his whole life. But apparently, you kind of predicted it, his health got worse because of this move to the English seaside. And this evening was even worse, again, because he was trying to recover from a respiratory infection. Yeah. Now, a side note is, this came up across several sources. They seem to all agree that Lewis was a heavy drug user during his life. Did they say what kind of drugs they used back then? Well, it would be things like opium, forms of cocaine. I mean, all kinds of heavy drugs. Heavy drugs. Now, most of these same sources seem to agree that his health was probably a factor in that. But pain, he's trying to get better maybe? Yeah, they would treat treat his condition medicinally with some of those very drugs. Yeah, our early Coca-Cola had Coke in it. Right. Right. So it's very likely that his chronic illness was part of the factor in why he was using these drugs, Mm -hmm. but it may not have been the only factor. Yeah. But it was also something that came up quite a bit was they seemed to have believed that he was, whether it was medicinally or not, being treated with cocaine during this time when he was having this dream. So again, this particular night, his sleep is very broken. He's in the middle of a nightmare. And it was so vivid that in the middle of the nightmare, he yelled out several times, which caused his wife to come and wake him up. But when she did, he basically got on her and said i'm writing something lady (laughs) yes like basically yes what'd you wake me up for he wanted to stay in the dream because he was getting this idea from it he told her quote i was dreaming a fine bogey tale and he was part of his visualization his little dream there was he was seeing a man changing into a monster by means of a concoction made with white powder Mm. now he got up i guess it was the next morning he's by the way he's in his mid-30s at this time he went down to eat with his family and these are recollections from that same stepson lloyd that we've already mentioned okay he wrote uh, memoirs and different things about his experience with his family lloyd did lloyd did okay and so some of this is directly from that okay 
So he said that his stepdad was obviously in a, quote, very preoccupied frame of mind and was hurrying through his meal, which was, again, here's another quote, an unheard of thing for him to do. And on leaving, said he was working with extraordinary success on a new story, end quote. Supposedly then, his stepdad went off and said to the family, do not disturb me, me even alone. if the house catches on no. fire. Like he told them, whatever Lewis. happened, leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. Now, supposedly for three straight days, Lewis wrote constantly, filling page after page from bed. And later in life, Fanny would reflect on this time period, thinking back on what she thought inspired Lewis's marathon of writing. And she recalled that her husband had recently read an article in a French scientific journal about the subconscious, Mm -hmm. about the mind's inner workings and buried desires, is how they phrased it in Mm -hmm. this article. So we have the dream that inspired him. Yeah. She says that this article inspired him, but then she goes on to say, yet there was something else besides the dream. She said she felt that his memories of Deacon Brody were part of this too. Who's that? We're coming back to that. Oh. Yes, because that's, that's a cliffhanger. Yes, that's kind of a big one. Okay. So in three days again, remember, he had finished his draft. It was almost 40,000 words. Do you realize that when people do NaNoWriMo, they're supposed to write 50,000 words in 30 days? And he did this. He in, did 40,000 in, in three. three. That's insane. He yeah. really was in a frenzy of writing. Yes, he was. And I think to achieve that, you do 1,600 words a day mm. to achieve NaNoWriMo. And that's across a month. Across 30 days. And wow. our man done did it in three. Go, Lewis. Go, Lewis. Yeah. In your frenzy. Well, and I'm what- glad the house didn't burn down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of sad because it said he proudly read his story to Fanny and Lloyd, which you can imagine he would yeah. after doing that. But then he was a little disappointed with Fanny's reaction. Oh, Fanny, what'd you say? Well, she critiqued it. She told him that she didn't think it was all that great, that she felt he should have written an allegory instead of a straight piece of sensationalism. She felt like it was kind of sensational. Well, I would say, Fanny, you were wrong before. So now my <laughs> now my thing is if Fanny hates it, I'm publishing it as is. No revisions. <laughs> well, according to Lloyd's memory, a heated argument ensued, which caused him to leave the room. He's like, Lloyd's like, uh-uh, peace no, out. thank you. No, thanks. <laughs> and so so even though Fanny's instincts about Treasure Island had proven to be completely wrong, this time he did listen to her. Oh. He threw the manuscript <gasps> in the fire. No. Passion. Passionate writers. And then he rewrote it again. But did you have to? I mean, you could have taken some of it. Like, use the rough draft. Eric Archilla told us, don't throw anything away. Right? Keep all your drafts. Yeah. <laughs> well, he burned that thing. Oh. But he came up with a new one. Now, this is interesting, too, because some said it was written again in a very short amount of time, while others said it took six weeks. But it was a period That's still of short. six weeks, regardless, <laughs> even with the polishing yeah. and all the things that happened. It was a relatively short work. In fact, they usually call it a novella. Mm. But he did not seem to be a big fan. In fact, later, he referred to it at one point as the worst thing he ever wrote, but it was a hit. Mm. Strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sold 40,000 copies in Britain during the first six months, and it brought him more attention and more acclaim than he'd ever had. One more interesting side note. Again, I told you, Fanny was a little controversial. In a blog for, it was a website called Inciting Incidents, there was an author who commented on this, and I liked I like the comments, so I'm going to kind of touch on that. There's this controversy about what actually happened to that draft because oh. they have all of these family letters and biographies from which they've pulled a lot of the things that I've shared, like Lloyd's account yeah. of, of how it came down, you know, that, that whole thing happened. But there was all this uncertainty about who really burned that draft because Lloyd said in his memoirs, that his, his stepfather burned the manuscript himself to ensure that he would write a better version. But apparently there was a letter from Fanny to this family friend. It was a poet named William Henley. It was only discovered in the last like 20, 25 years. Yeah. And in that, she wrote that the initial story was a, quote, choir full of utter nonsense. That was the end of that quote. But she went on to complain that it was not the allegory that it should have been. Yeah. The, allegor- the allegorical aspects were not clear. and she says that she plans to burn the draft in the future after oh. 
after this guy, William Henley, read it. So a lot of people say, because she put that in the letter, she's the one who burned it. Well, this blog writer says she said she intended to. But she didn't. But she didn't. Like, this is the speculation. She said, I don't like this. I don't think it's a strong piece. I want you to read it. Do you agree with me? I think I'm going to burn it. But the point that's made is if he'd already burned it himself, if she gave him the criticism and Lewis burned it himself, then she didn't have to. Yeah. And she also goes on to say that Fanny was right in this case. Mm. Either way, it got burned and it's the new draft. draft. The second version is the one that everybody says is amazing. But he didn't like the second version. He it sounds like, I bet he liked his first version. Mm-hmm. And it could have been, we haven't seen the first version. Right. So it could have been even greater. Who knows? I don't know. Either way, never burn somebody else's stuff. Never delete somebody else's stuff. It's, not, it's yours. not yours. Yeah, no. it's not yours. But it did make me wonder because, you know... Sh- it seems a little harsh. She shouldn't have even threatened that. Yeah. You know, if we're going to if we're gonna judge a little bit here, she shouldn't have even said, I'm going to yeah. burn it. Yeah. But just because she said it doesn't mean she did sure. it. Yeah. I'll mm-hmm. give her that. All right. So we're going to get ready to go to break. Okay. But when we come back, yes. let's talk about Deacon Brody and oh, how yes. he inspired The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Good cliffhanger. Do you love tea? Do you love entertainment? Do you love listening to stories from your two new BFFs? Then consider joining the club over at buymeacoffee.com. For $5 per month, you can be a part of the 1939 Club, otherwise known as the Golden Year of Cinema. When Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Stagecoach of Mice and Men, Wuthering Heights, Hound of the Baskervilles, The Little Princess, Babes in Arms, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, The Wizard of Oz were released. Perks include a 5% discount on new merchandise, a shout-out for new members, an opportunity to be listed as a supporter in show notes, and exclusive access to bonus content. However, if you're feeling doubly generous, you can join the 1993 Club, otherwise known as the greatest year of cinema. This is the year that Schindler's List, The Sandlot, The Fugitive, Rudy, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, Sleepless in Seattle, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Mrs. Doubtfire, Grumpy Old Men, and of course, Jurassic Park were released. Additional perks in this club include a 10% discount on Scandalwater merchandise, the opportunity to record a shout-out of your own, and the chance to vote in our guaranteed content poll, along with the warm and sunny feeling that you're supporting your besties. If clubbing isn't your thing, there's a one-time gift option, too. Either way, those who support Scandalwater report fewer bad hair days, more green lights and traffic, and a grander sense of purpose and wonder at least once per day. Scandalwater, we do the research so you don't have to. We are back and ready to talk about Deacon Brody. Yes. So who was Deacon Brody? Who was he? Well, here's who he was. He was a well-to-do young man in 18th century Edinburgh who was known for his cabinetry skills. He was a very successful craftsman. Okay. In fact, as a child, Lewis had furniture that was made by Deacon Brody in his bedroom. Some sources said it was a cabinet. Others said it was a bookcase and a chest of drawers. But Mm -hmm. they all seemed to agree that Lewis's father had hired Deacon to make some furniture okay. and some of this was in the house All right. which may be another reason why Deacon's story would have connected with Lewis okay here's what happened oh you look so you're I know. like you're I'm kind of excited you're on the edge of your seat <laughs> well let's see okay so Deacon Brody belonged to a city council and he served as its quote Deacon of the Incorporation of Rights so Deacon was a deacon Exactly. That's why he was called Deacon. Because actually he was born as William. Oh. But he was called Deacon now and he was rich because his father was a successful builder who left Deacon a lot of money when he died. In fact, one source said it was the equivalent of approximately $2.1 million today. Do we know where Deacon Brody was when his father died? Where he was and where... Oh! We do not. Okay. The way you keep saying his name, I'm thinking he is nefarious. <laughs> Up to no yes. Good. Up to no good. Well, this was a lot of money regardless. Yeah. But this is also during a time when the average person might only earn a few pounds a, sure. a, a year. Yeah. So that was a lot of money. Plus, Deacon was bringing in good money for his own mm-hmm. work. His own so skills. So he was one of the wealthiest people in Edinburgh. And he stood out. This made him stand out. He was wealthy. He had status. And they also commented that his appearance made him stand out. He supposedly had a particular air in his walk. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Confident. Yeah. But he was also slender. He looked young for his age. He would dress in nice suits. One biographer said that he liked to sometimes wear all white. Oh. Yeah, that would make you stand out. Yeah. 
So he basically kind of had this image he created among his friends in town, right? But what they didn't know was what he was doing behind closed doors. Oh. He really loved to gamble. Okay. And would often lose a lot of money, especially on cockfighting matches. Ew. In fact, I know. He kept several of the the cocks himself at home in a pen Mm. in this really nice house that he lived in. He also liked to party and drink quite a bit, whether it was in the nicer establishments or some of the not-so-nice establishments. Mm. He also had at least, they're not sure how many, but at least two mistresses Mm. with whom he had at least five children. Wow. But he was married? When you say mistresses, he was married plus mistresses? Okay. And at some point in here, he turned to crime. Most people... Figures just because he was obsessed with money. And he was probably he was bored. Greedy. And he's bored. He's got everything. So why not see what I can get away with? Maybe, but you know, go make some more cabinets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Put all that fury into cabinet. <laughs> but um, he became one of Britain's most notorious criminals, especially obviously. So everybody knew he was doing this? No, this, oh. is, this is after he got caught. Okay. Yeah. So he turned into this really skilled burglar. He would wear a mask and it was something like 20 years he got away with this. He would often rob his own friends and acquaintances. He would find opportunities to like swipe their keys, Mm. make duplicates and then, you know, replace the original and then use that copy to get into their houses or their businesses. Yes. And then somewhere along the way, he hooked up with these two men who then became his accomplices in this. George Smith, a traveling salesman and John Brown, who was a convicted felon who was on the lam in Scotland who and afraid of being deported to an overseas penal colony. So these are the guys he's hanging around with and they start robbing everything from a jewelry store where they stole 10 priceless watches to a grocer's where they stole 350 pounds of highly valuable black tea and even the University of Edinburgh where they stole a school heirloom, a silver mace. So it was like like they were doing it for fun. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's just bored and he wants to see what he can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like it was Mm. just about the kicks in some ways. Yes. So by January of 1788, there's a quote from a little newspaper account that said, authorities were straining every nerve to discover who was responsible for this. And it was striking terror into the hearts of the wealthy Edinburghs. Mm. So the police were going at it. They were really trying to find these robbers. So I'm, okay, I'm going to make an assumption here that his public persona was like the Dr. Jekyll where he's real sweet or something and then the Mr. Hyde is his other personality and that's what influenced him for this story yes that that's, but he, that's but our he, inference but his public persona is he's having cockfights right they know it's him that's not a good person I'm sorry it's not I'm going to be judgy I will full on be judgy <laughs> about that and I don't know that all the people passing him on the streets would have Knew known that, that side I of see. him the people maybe that, that was are, his Mr. Hyde side right and and, and the ones who did know about that were doing it too, mm. and mm-hmm. and it was probably more accepted at that time. I guess. Period. But I anyway. have chickens, so I judge I, everyone. Well, I under, I don't think anybody right now is going. No. You go, <laughs> you go, Deacon. Yeah. <laughs> But the police are really trying to find these guys, and the Edinburgh newspapers are even filled with ads placed by investigators who are trying to get information from the public. They increase the reward and promise to pardon any of the people involved in these crimes, which was obviously an attempt to break up. Yeah, the Mm three-ring circus there. Exactly, and it worked. Good. Yes, First, one fella came and confessed, and then the second one confessed as well. Mm -hmm. And this is where Deacon fled the country heading for Amsterdam. And he wrote a letter to his friend where he said it was, quote, a hairbreadth escape from a well-scented pack of bloodhounds. When the police searched his home, they found pick locks, a set of false keys, and pistols buried near his beloved little cockfighting pen. Ew, ew, ew. Yes. And they said the public was absolutely scandalized really? when all this came out. That This man who was so well-respected yeah. was doing, doing all, all these this. awful things. It is awful. Yes. In fact, an editorial in the Edinburgh Evening Current summed it up with these words. Quote, with what amazement must it strike every friend to virtue and honesty to find that a person is charged with a crime who very lately distinguished rank among his fellow citizens. So it was like they felt like this really acclaimed 
wealthy person who seemed to be so good and uplifting, it just really, in some ways, shocked and, and disappointed them, but to an extreme yeah. level that he had this dark side they never dreamed of. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, they finally caught Deacon Brody. It took a couple of months, and his trial was really fast. In fact, they said it lasted little more than a day. Ooh. The courtroom was packed because everybody was very interested in yeah. this. And supposedly, the, re- the people reporting on it said that throughout the trial, Deacon displayed nothing but refined manners. He was perfectly collected, respectful to the court, and when anything ludicrous occurred in the evidence, he smiled as if he had been an indifferent spectator. That was a little quote from the Edinburgh Advertiser. And the jury decided he was guilty, and he was sentenced to hanging. They had swift justice back then. Yes, they did. The following October, he was ascending the gallows, dressed in his finest clothing, hair carefully powdered, which was the trend of the time. And again, another quote from the local newspaper, a last step into the air brought the career of Deacon William Brody to an end. Now, this, we know for a fact, did inspire Robert Louis Stevenson because he wrote about this incident a few different times. In a work called the Edinburgh Picturesque Notes, he had a little quote about this Deacon Brody case where he said, quote, he may be seen, a man harassed below a mountain of duplicity, slinking from a magistrate's supper room to a thieves' ken and pickering among the closes by the flicker of a dark lamp. So it struck him. Something about this struck him, this idea of a man in all white who's acclaimed and, you know, Know, having this dark side seemed to really get to him because mm-hmm. around 1878, he and his friend, that same poet we mentioned earlier, W.E. Henley, mm-hmm. they joined up and put together this dramatization of Deacon Brody's life. And they turned it into a five-act play called Deacon Brody or The Double Life. I think oh. they kind of used both titles. Okay. Although they spiced it up a bit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they added some murder into it. <laughs> well, just who knows? For fun. <laughs> who knows, though, with this guy? Yeah, but it did not do well. It Aww. did flop after almost, well, almost immediately after opening. And George Bernard Shaw described it as having pasteboard scenes and characters. But this was only four years before he ends up writing. Jekyll and Hyde. Strange case Mm. of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, again, he says it came to him from the dream. Which is also, Mary Shelley said that Frankenstein came to her in a dream. I need to be dreaming back then. Was it a thing back then? I like I mean, was that kind of almost a, what's the word? I don't know what you would call it. You know, like a wives' tale or or some kind of accepted idea that your dreams are there for that purpose? I don't don't know. know. Maybe it was a little belief they had. Maybe they had their version of melatonin and they were having some crazy dreams mm-hmm. I don't know. but again when reporters asked him one time when he was on a trip to new york about this book he said it came to me as a gift and he went on with his quote to say i am so much in the habit of making stories that i go on making them while asleep sometimes they come to me in the form of nightmares insofar that they make me cry out aloud so soon as i awake and it always awakens me when i get on a good thing i set to work and put it together Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's Deacon Brody. I thought it was kind of fun to That include... is. He was a horrible person. He was. I will full on say that. I'm sorry to his ancestors or if anyone that knows him like happens to tune in, <laughs> but you had a bad seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But another instance of how true crime yeah. inspired... Fiction. Fiction. Mm-hmm. Just to finish this up quickly, Lewis didn't have much longer to live. Aww. They lived temporarily in New York in 1887. Also cold. Mm-hmm. He needed to go to Arizona. Well, he didn't go to Arizona. Instead, they took his now widowed mother with them, and they began touring the South Pacific looking for a great place to stay, and they settled in Samoa in 1890. Okay. I don't know what the weather's like there. Warm. I think it was good. Okay. Yeah. But not humid, I hope. That would be bad on your lungs, too. Yeah. I don't know about that. But apparently they were happy there. Good. They built a house, and they said that Lewis became an advocate for the Samoans, who named him Tusatala, which means teller of tales. Nice. But he died on December 3rd, 1894, when he was only 44 years old Goodness. of a cerebral hemorrhage. Aww. And he, w- he left one of his works unfinished, which he thought was going to be maybe his greatest work yeah what was it did they say the title i hope i say this right it looks like it's Ware of hermiston oh yeah and they cleared a path 
nearly 60 Samoan men were involved in this, and they carried him to the summit of this mount that was near them and buried him there. Oh. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting point, which I don't know if we've talked about a lot before, but immediately after his death, everybody was saying how great he was. But around the 1920s and 1930s, all of a sudden, the critics started coming in saying, you know what? We've given this guy too much credit. It's Mm. kind of pretentious. They started pulling out trouble he'd gotten into Mm -hmm. back in college. And they started maybe tearing it down a little bit, his accomplishments. Yeah. And then it took until the 1950s and 60s when people seemed to start reconsidering his work. And he started getting recognition from the academic community again. Okay. But I'm going to end with this last little quote or point, I should should say. This one source said he's obviously best known for Treasure Island, which was Mm -hmm. 1882. And this story we've spent all this time talking about, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was 1886. And this person says, both of these novels share Stevenson's key theme, the impossibility of identifying and separating good and evil. Mm. Treasure Island's Long John Silver is simultaneously a courageous friend and a treacherous cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Jekyll, who is not wholly good, but a mixture of good and evil, is eventually ruled by Hyde because mm. of his own moral weakness. Mm. With Silver, Jekyll, and others, Stevenson set standards for complex characterization that were adopted by later writers. His method of rendering ambiguous, enigmatic personalities was one of Stevenson's greatest literary contributions. Very nice. Mm -hmm. Armchair Psychologist. So for our armchair, Ashley, I thought maybe we would just delve a little bit more into the plot itself. Like when we think about this idea of Jekyll and Hyde and split personalities or, or... two parts of oneself, what are some ideas or or themes or works today that seem to also hit on that same idea? Well, I don't know about actual works, but I would say the phrase, where I've heard this phrase a lot in modern world is in the emotional abuse, the narcissistic mm. recovery community, where if a person is, is in a relationship with someone who ha- they will describe them as being a Jekyll and a Hyde. I don't know which personality I'm going to get when they come home from work. Is it Dr. Jekyll or is it Mr. Hyde? Or they may just say Jekyll or Hyde. So that's where I'm most familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating to me that in the case of Frankenstein and in the case of Jekyll and Hyde, we've got people who wrote things 150 years ago that are still influencing culture today. Mm -hmm. And it's almost a shorthand. Like Frankenstein is a shorthand for trying to play God. And then Jekyll and Hyde is the shorthand for being involved with or knowing someone who has two completely separate personalities. Yeah, they have this dark side yeah. that comes out yes. in certain situations. That's true. You know, when you were talking, it made me think of some things we also said in our gaslighting episode. Yeah. That idea that certain people, it may not be that there are two sides of them and they're having trouble controlling them. It might be that they're purposefully manipulating. Like, like Deacon? Yes. I'm going to show you mm-hmm. this side of me. Mm-hmm that appears to be really good because it's going to serve me well at this moment or this is what I think will please you. Yes, I think, okay, I think from, yes, dealing with people who have narcissistic personality disorder, they tend to meet Dr. Jekyll first. Mm -hmm. So that's how they get into the relationship with the person is he comes across as kind or as in Deacon Brody's case, comes across as a good member of society and you get drawn into the relationship Mm -hmm. when then it's like, oh, he turned into Mr. Hyde but in actuality what was actually happening is Mr. Hyde was the person and he was pretending to be Dr. Jekyll. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like this Hyde mm-hmm. is who this person or or woman, man or woman, Hyde is who that person is and they pretend to be the Jekyll version to get their relationship started. Yeah. With the victim. Yeah. So it is in these cases that we're talking about, it is very calculated. Yes, like Brody. I don't think that Brody was struggling with Deacon. I don't think the Deacon was struggling with anything. I think he knew exactly who he was and he was pretending to be this nice member of society so that he could gain access mm-hmm. to all of these things. And maybe he was even being a cabinet maker. He, he happened to be good at it. They can have skills. They're people. They can have skills. So cabinet making, he goes into these homes and sees what they have and goes and steals from them. I don't know. So that's interesting. Thinking about Deacon Brody and what an example he would have been to Robert Louis Stevenson, this man whose bad side was 
really, it sounds like, much more prevalent than his good side. His good side was just a facade. Yes. I can see where that would have inspired him, you know, to really think about this idea of good and evil Mm -hmm. within a person and that battle that you, that a more moral person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it doesn't sound like Deacon had any morality to him. No, (laughs) But a more moral person, that battle that they might have to try to control their darker yeah. side and to to bring out the good which but it got away from him it did so let's let's look at it from a what can we learn so what can okay. we learn from a Jekyll and Hyde personality like if you're if there's somebody out there that you think has a Jekyll and Hyde personality what what can we learn from this do you think I don't know if it comes directly from the work but what comes to my mind is that in our world today where so much of our communications are not very personal anymore mm-hmm. we do so much of it in uh, via online communications or these very surface level interactions that I think to me one of the lessons is get to know somebody really well yes. get to know the person and don't make assumptions based on these short little encounters or these I don't know, brief little impressions. Mm-hmm. The small talk. Yes. You you really need to know a person because people can put on a front for yes, a while, but it is really hard to maintain it. Sooner or later, I think the true person- The mask pro- slips. Yeah, right. The, and the true personality is going to come out. So this is this PSA from Candy and Ashley, the true crime aficionados. <laughs> <laughs> we have said this over and over and over again, but be careful. Yes. Be careful with who you let in your life, with who you let in your heart, with who you let in your inner circle. Know that person. Mm-hmm. And if you have any little inkling in your gut, if you see anything that makes you go, mm, this sounds like what they were talking about, be careful. Yeah. Be careful. You know what? Let's end there because okay. I think that's a really a really good lesson. It is. <laughs> For us and everybody it else. It is. Yes. We've, we've both, I'm sure, learned it ourselves. All right. So thank you to Robert Louis Stevenson for, for teaching us that lesson, helping us think about that yes. today. And no thank you to, to Deacon Brody. <laughs> Deacon Brody. No thank you, sir. You are not to be cheersed. <laughs> Cheers, Louis. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.